This evening's talk is about practice here and there, practice everywhere. And so here we are, coming to the end of an extended uh, period of mostly silent, intensive practice here. And soon uh, to be taking yourself out there, uh, wherever out there is for you. Which for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and some feelings, states of mind that aren't so dissimilar to those that we came into the retreat with. For many uh, people, there's a feeling of excitement and uh, a readiness to go into an extended a period of intensive practice. And just before it's time to enter in, there may also be the feelings of uh, the sense that, well, I'm just not quite finished out here. <laughs> just a few more days or maybe another week. Uh, so that I can do all the things that need to be done and then I'll be ready to go in to retreat or to go in. (laughs) And it seems that some of us have similar feelings, similar thoughts when it's time to come out. An excitement uh, and a readiness to go out into the larger world. Or, or, and along with maybe, some thoughts of, well, just just a little bit more time, a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, a month more, to do what uh, needs to be done here, in here, and then and then I'll be finished, and then I'll be ready to come out, and then I'll be ready to go back out there. Sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there may be some degree of reluctance, some degree of resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known or maybe essentially just simply fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. So you might check in with yourself and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings, maybe similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of the retreat uh, that you might have experienced as you were preparing to come here or maybe that you felt at the onset of this retreat. And of course, we may not feel any anxiety at all in either direction. 
entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase, the next form that life will take. At at a retreat that I taught some years ago, one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, like kind of like a plane descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity coming back to earth, so to say. And in relation to this, I'd like to read just uh, the last part of a piece that I read uh, a couple of evenings ago uh, that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert. I'm just going to read the the last part of it because it's appropriate in this context. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you were out there, or we could say that's why we've been in here. (laughs) And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. So reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our days of practice of how quickly things change within our own body-mind continuum. How quickly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make the change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in, a, in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. 
We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we try, we can't hold on to anything. And we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness deepened and the focusing power of the mind developed over these days and weeks of practice, we've had a taste that the experience of the breath, or maybe particularly what we may have experienced in the mind and body. We've had some glimpse of how any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, really an unfathomable, unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it changes, sometimes quite quickly, or it just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and our aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in our relationships to others. More clarity in what's appropriate and what's important, what's wholesome, what's truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep, we speak just a little every few days, we engage in a yogi job every day, and within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to the breath at the touching point, or to bring a concentrated clarity of attention to the image of the object of your metta and the metta phrases. You've been supported to notice what occurs in the body and the mind and not get caught, not be seduced by these happenings. Through these days of practice, you've come to see and know more clearly when the mind, when the heart is connecting to the experience of breath or to other body-mind experiences. Or is it disconnected? Is it distracted, separated? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, 
what brings calm, what brings joy, what brings tranquility and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. All of us, we're all so similar, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. Really, we're just all variations on themes. We're all totally connected or interconnected totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila or virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart and mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice may be beginning our day, chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging and engendering the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And there's a particular rendition of the refuges and precepts that I offered on the opening evening of this retreat written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Zen Farm and I'd like to share this with you again because it's really very relevant uh, to daily life practice in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow not to kill knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. We vow to not... I have to put my glasses on. <laughs> knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as uh, I'm sure for many of you, the, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, um, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, my life outside of retreat, to live my daily life in a way that serves, in a way that supports the process of the purification of the heart, which is so intimately related to the process of awakening. And it's been interesting to see this happening over time, sometimes through conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as our practice deepens, there's more and more of a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits, relinquish the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So, a personal example. There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point I really began to notice this as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. And I'd be driving somewhere and my hand... uh, would kind of automatically begin to move up towards the radio knob. The force of habit, of course, is very, very strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down again. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then there was a choice available, to or not to.
So looking at another change in this simple and uh, quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days here, some big events for you, and especially a big day or an especially big event for you might have been something as ordinary as laundry day or maybe mealtime within a day. For me, there were uh, times over the years of long intensive retreat practice when particularly laundry day (laughs) was such an important aspect of my day when it came around that I would find myself thinking about it, uh, planning planning it uh, the day before. And before I went to sleep the night before laundry day, um, I would be laying in bed planning the next morning. And then sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and the first thing that would come into my mind on laundry day was that. And again, continuing to plan for laundry day. With some anxiety, actually, a lot of the time. So I suspect some of you know what I'm talking about, since I see smiling here. (laughs) And how about what may, for some of you, have felt like a a big event? A practice interview. So a poem uh, called A Big Day by Nanao Sakaki. It's titled, A Big Day. Getting water at the spring. Carrying firewood. Chattering with the neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just about 30 miles north of here. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag. And he'd stay up at the foundation for a couple of days. They were always very delighted to put put him up there. And then he'd head out into the mountains um, with nothing more than he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a few weeks. Uh, and then, uh, then he'd be back again, uh, back at Lama. A dear friend of mine, uh, who was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation uh, during those years, uh, told me a story uh, of one of these times when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her and another friend if they'd like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. And my friend was very, really delighted. Dinner with Nanao at his camp was something very special, and something, in fact, that had never been offered before. So on the appointed day uh, and time, my friend and the other invitee found their way to Nanao's uh, camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, uh, but there wasn't any food ready, or, and, and there wasn't any food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. So my friend thought that maybe they'd made a mistake and that this was the wrong day. 
but Nanao was very delighted to see them and welcomed them heartily and then said, well, let's go out and find dinner. <laughs> so my friend said that they, they walked and they picked and they dug uh, various wild foods and then came back and built a fire and cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in an interview uh, spoke about the simplicity on retreat as having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste, and we, we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our family life, our work life, and yet there are always ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do, little by little, as our practice deepens both in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with partners, with family, with friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take away with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some quite complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of, outside of this retreat setting. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, in the midst of relationships and various responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated unskillful ways of being, being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with a clearer focus and with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. 
and we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And so we find then that we have more energy and time available to us for our life to more and more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a focused attention and a mindful awareness into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, making all of it part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout the day when we can just simply bring our attention for instance, to the sensations of the breath at the touching point. In almost any circumstance, in almost any activity, for just a few moments. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat, because all of this has come up in retreat, for all of you, (laughs) and in life outside of retreat, the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel uh, a number of years ago now, and who had long before I met her, uh, lived in a spiritual community in France uh, that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, that's really a wonderful mirror of uh, a particular and a difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said in this community in France where she was living, there was an old man who was quite an irascible old fellow. And he was quite messy and argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with anything. 
And basically, he didn't get along with anybody, and uh, nobody got along with him, consequently. And she said that nobody in the community really liked him very much, and that he himself didn't seem to uh, like very many people in the community either. She said that for a long time he tried to stay in the community, but it was very difficult for him, as well as, of course, for others there. And so difficult that finally he left. He just couldn't bear it anymore, and he went to Paris. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't. He couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there, he said. So Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. So he returned. And when the man returned into the community, everyone in the community was really shocked, aghast. <laughs> and they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in that community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting because they complained a lot <clears throat> about it. And he listened to everyone's complaints. <clears throat> and this woman said, and then he just burst out laughing. And he said to the, to the community, he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions of our life, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart, the mind, yeast for our liberation, yeast for our awakening. There's one teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons. And uh, the metaphor is for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. Unconditional loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular uh, karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these divine abidings. I only have three sons, uh, but they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need, and what they give to us, what they show us. So an example, my, my two oldest sons, who are 45 years old now and are identical twins, continue to show me, to teach me actually, a relationship that's very rare, I think. They're 
each other's best friends. And although, of course, when they were small, when they were little guys, they would fight with each other as children do. But over these, all these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other, actually, in negative, judgmental ways. They never, really never put each other down, no matter what the other one is doing or feeling. how the other one, no matter how the other one's life is going. And they're also, they've never been each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. I think this is really quite a rare friendship and sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I learn from it very often. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has potential towards the purification of the heart and the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, Seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. <clears throat> and a poem from the Turkish of Edib Kansiver, translated by Richard Tillingast. It's called Table. A man filled with gladness, with a man filled with the gladness of living, put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer, he put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door 
the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this noble sacred path is first and foremost a focused concentrated attention that's grounded in mindfulness. And it's true there's some change in the depth of the sustaining quality of the focusing power of our mind, the concentration of mind that you've created over these days, over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect to a larger world. And it's true there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness usually isn't totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration and mindfulness that we experience in a retreat such as this is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Concentration and mindfulness are always, always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat with one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks, and I asked him if there was any advice he uh, might give to me around taking practice uh, into the world, into the whole of my life. And his response was this. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that was that. That's all he said. Really good advice. (laughs) In terms of integrating your practice of concentration and mindfulness more and more fully into your life. There are some particular ways that I and many others have found to be very helpful. And one suggestion, an interesting suggestion, is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop and simply connect with the breath at the touching point. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 or 30 minutes a day of a very directly focused practice time. With each of these moments having an effect, in fact, on the moments that follow. I think the only hard thing about doing uh, any of these, this particular practice or any uh, of a few things I'll mention, uh, these medi- short meditation sessions, is to remember to do them. That's the hardest thing, is to remember to do them. Doing them is not hard. 
I know some people who put um, little notes to themselves around their home, their living space, or their workspace to remind them to check in. So like a note on the bathroom mirror, breathe or breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at work or at home, still breathing, or meta now. <laughs> there was a man who <clears throat> was on staff at the Insight Meditation Society who worked in the front office for some years, and he had a little note, stand-up note on, on his desk, and it said buttocks. <laughs> it was to remind him to bring his attention into his whole body, sitting, and to feel the contact of his buttocks against the chair. And of course it made a lot of people laugh as well when they saw it. <laughs> Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect, actually, of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place throughout a day, certainly throughout a week. And we can make some of this walking a time of practice. When I lived at the Insight Meditation Society as resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space, both the same rooms, were up was the same room, was up on the second floor. And because I did many practice interviews uh, and I had a lot of meetings, <laughs> I didn't really ever have time during the day to do walking meditation much. And so I decided that Every time I went up and down the stairs, which was fairly often, uh, it would be my walking practice time. And so most days I did this. And at one point, uh, one of the staff members um, came in for an interview and he was obviously quite agitated. And with some difficulty, he told me that he was quite upset because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> and he was wondering if I was angry with him. And so I told him that going up and down the stairs was uh, my walking meditation time and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him, nor was I uh, at all angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could when I was going up and down the stairs. And of course this completely changed his attitude and he was delighted for me and thought it was a great idea. <laughs> People may not always understand what you're doing when you uh, integrate your practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see this uh, and feel the great benefit of it, um, as many of you have mentioned, in fact, uh, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, 
even just a group of two or three or even just one other person once in a while check and see if there's a sitting group in your area and if there isn't start one which might mean just asking one or two other people who meditate or maybe some who want to learn to meditate to join you once a week or join you every other week and as some of you do with groups that you do belong to sit together first when you get together and then maybe read something out loud about practice or the teachings maybe listen to a CD and taking turns each week is a nice way to do it so that different the folks involved can each choose some particular reading or something to listen to and then have some discussion afterwards with what you've listened to and maybe also include some discussion about your practice together the Buddha in a conversation with Ananda one of the Buddha's chief disciples spoke about the importance of connecting with spiritual friends and the venerable Ananda said to the Buddha half this holy life O Lord is good and noble friends companionship with the good association with the good and the Buddha responded do not say that Ananda it's the whole of this holy life the friendship companionship and association with the good use your life wisely use your energy wisely let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice meditation is one of the great arts of life perhaps the greatest and it can take place anywhere anytime when we have the intention to live awake as we go out into the larger world if we're patient and determined in our practice it's inevitable that calm tranquility and joy increases it's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases it's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases and another poem from Nanasakaki if you have time to chatter read books if you have time to read walk into the mountain desert and ocean if you have time to walk sing songs and dance if you have time to dance sit quietly you happy lucky idiot <laughs> And closing uh, this evening's talk with another Nanao, one last Nanao poem, both as a tribute to him and 
as a tribute to our practice. And his title for this poem is called A Love Letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or winter drifting ices in the sea of Oxta. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light-years large, the galaxy full-blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light-years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light-years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.